Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here as ever with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, happy new year. Um, how are you? I'm doing all right, man. We made it. We made it to another year. We made it out of that total shit show that was 2020. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can say so far so good, other than uh, things like the passing of one of the greatest hip hop MCs of all time in MF Doom, which was the way that I finished off the end of last year. So I guess we can consign that to 2020. So yeah, in terms of the first, what are we now? Like two weeks of the year from my little corner of the earth, uh, things have been all right. Um, I'm getting a new bathroom, Paul. So um, that's a thing. That's something to look forward to. My little hometown football team, I don't know if you heard, but Cheltenham Town drew a a Tim Pot club called Manchester City in the FA Cup um, for later this this I month, didn't know that, no. which is a, a weird. It's a weird bittersweet thing because on the one hand it's inc an incredible cash windfall, not as good as it would have been if we had fans in the stadium, and then that brings us to the other side, which is that as a season ticket holder, just like everybody else, I can't go yeah. to the game. I can only watch it on the TV. Although flipping back to positives again, it's on BBC One, which for Cheltenham Town is really something. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm buzzed about that stuff. How about you? Has the new year treated you okay, generally speaking? Yeah, not too bad, I guess. Um, exciting news for the podcast that people may have noticed on the social media feed. We're doing an In Focus series uh, starting this year, which has gone up now with the first episode talking about uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture with um, a guy you may be familiar with, uh, Zig Bingham, who's hosted before. So that's exciting. So a bit more content coming into your ears. So we're going to do a Star Trek series to start with, and then that just gives us a bit more room to go into depth on uh, films in general. So it might be that Pete joins uh, that one to talk about some films once we're done with the Star Trek series, which I know is of so little interest to you. Uh, <laughs> it couldn't be, couldn't be further from the truth, I don't think. So um, that just gives us a bit more flexibility. So that's quite exciting. Uh, X66 back with a bang this year. I'm submissions director this year, so I've taken a jump up there. So that's very exciting. So yeah, I think things to uh, things to look forward to this year, definitely. Yeah. Uh, which is basically the kind of theme of the show, I think, really. So what we're going to do this week, we're going to do very, a brief popcorn movie section. We're going to talk about the latest Netflix release, uh, Pieces of a Woman, the kind of uh, film that Vanessa Kirby's rightfully, I think, got a lot of uh, awards buzz about. Uh, and then go into uh, reasons to be positive for 2021 with our most anticipated films of the year, uh, which, Pete, I'm very excited to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it, it might, might sound like throwing shade, but I think when you're excited about things, it's probably best to avoid saying you're excited or it's exciting because I feel like for whatever reason when you say this is exciting news it sounds like it isn't exciting news like you're almost uh shortchanging <laughs> your own hype but yeah. but no for, for real though man like I'm very much on that thing like in the in the micro sense in terms of looking forward to the movies that are going to come out this year you know come rain or shine come cinema reopenings or not we're going to get a bunch of these movies all being well and touch wood but then also on the macro level I think that at least from my point of view, and I, you maybe you'll echo this, Paul, it's kind of the year to try your damnedest to be positive and look for the uptick wherever you can see it, because my God, last year was rough. So we've, we've, yeah, we've got to cling on to these kind of uh, forthcoming silver linings, I think. Are you with me on that? Oh, no, I'm totally with you on that one. And I just want to make clear to listeners at home as well is that it would have been, you know, with the amount of things that were delayed last year, we could have just rerun last year's most anticipated films of the year episode. We haven't done. 
there may be some crossover with last year's most anticipated films. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and this year's this likewise with next year's as well, right? So we'll we'll see how it, <laughs> yeah. it plays out in the fullness of time. But Paul, I suppose we should get into it in terms of the first section of the show. So for this week, we're going to have a look at popcorn movies, right? Movies that we've caught up with recently. It's been a bit of a mad period, like Christmas period and then New Year. I gather that you've been quite active, as you tend to be, in terms of your film consumption. But what stood out for you recently? Uh, well, there's a, there's a few things I wanted to talk about. I think I've looking at Airbox, I've hit 20 films for the year so far because I, I didn't hit the magic number of 365 last year, which kind of disappointed me. But then with everything going on, you know, I had other things on my plate. Um, but hey ho. Um, so yeah, the the first thing I wanted to talk about is I rewatched uh, Dark Man uh, the other day. Uh, this is Sam Raimi's um, very dark um, comic book movie from 19. 19- 90 starring a Liam Neeson and a young Francis well a young Liam Neeson in fact and a young Francis McDormand um, this is a very very odd film uh, I'm not going to talk too much about it Liam Neeson basically uh, is accosted by some villains gets all his skin most of his skin burnt off in an accident but just so happens to be uh, a doctor that's researching skin graft replacements so kind of half grows his face back can mimic other people um I think the, the thing is with this is I watched it quite a few years ago now and I quite enjoyed it. This time round, I think I've hit the point where how much Sam Raimi is too much Sam Raimi. Darkman is possibly too much Sam Raimi for me. I've talked a lot on the show before about how directors kind of reach the, the peak of their power and then are kind of left to do whatever they want and go sort of their ideas go completely unchecked. Um, where we talked, we've talked about this quite a few times last year. Like you look at Tenet, for example. Um, I'm thinking of ending things. I know you liked it more than I did, but that kind of thing. This for me, just there's a lot of ideas here that the film is messy. I struggled to follow what was going on. There's some, there's some nice Raimi-esque visuals, but it's just a bit of a mess to be honest. And I kind of, it's the kind of film that I wish I hadn't rewatched because I had fond memories of it, and now I don't. Oh, boo to that man. I'll go back to it soon. But like, (laughs) it sticks out for me, you know, that bit where he goes, uh, let me explain my points or whatever. And it's a finger cutting sequence. Fantastic. Peak (laughs) cinema, uh, the peak of cinema. So yeah, for me, maybe it's a bit like the discussion around uh, I'm thinking of ending things just in the sense that how much Sam Raimi is too much Sam Raimi. There is is no too much Sam Raimi as far as I'm concerned. Turn it up to 11, (laughs) bring it on. Oh, and hey, uh, neat segue, Paul. Uh, A turn it up to 11, uh, there is not too much type film first for me this week, which is uh, Lucy, the Luc Besson film that we've talked about on the show previously. It's been out five, six, seven years now. uh, And I saw it in the cinema. And if I'm completely candid, Paul, I was under a lot of stress at work at the time and I fell asleep for a chunk of this film when I was in the cinema, which for a film that is is nothing if not kind of balls to the wall action is a bit of a strange response. But I guess there was something in me that kind of needed to pull the ripcord because I wasn't going to keep up with whatever it was that Morgan Freeman was talking about in this movie. But I've been back to it since. So I think this is the third time I've seen the thing. And I think if you just take Lucy on its kind of own daft terms, it's a good time. In the end, it's just a simple movie about a girl who gets filled up with super drugs that allow her to access 100% of her brain's ability and that leads her to turn into a USB stick. What is not to like about a film like that? (laughs) And, And I mean, you know, sort of joking aside, I guess, at the middle of the thing, you've got Scarlett Johansson just being in the kind of role that she can do, you know, with her eyes closed and and. The performance is genuinely great in the movie. So, yeah, it's dumb, but it's vastly better than, for example, 
a pretty identikit Luke Besson movie from a couple of years ago called Anna, uh, which you may have caught up with by now. This is vastly Still superior. Still haven't caught up with it, actually, no. Um, and, you know, we've had our feelings about things like Valerian. Um, that, you know, Luke Besson's the kind of director where you think that there's all this great stuff in the back catalogue. And if you really go back through that, that, uh, that playlist, that filmography, you might realise that maybe the bad outweighs the good to a certain degree. But even bad Luke Besson, the kind of casual sexism and, and sort of objectification of women, maybe notwithstanding, I, I'm pretty much there for it. Not that stuff, let's make that clear, so much. But but this is good fun. It's good fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, Troy Min Six in it, man. What else do you want? So, yeah, um, I liked it. it. It's pretty good. And I think it's actually got marginally better with repeat viewings, but no less stupid. Uh, what's next for you? I'll have to give it another go then. I'll have to give it another go because I remember this, this is when I, I bellowed at some kids behind me talking in the cinema and just turned around with the intention of politely asking them to be quiet and just... Yeah, just literally just went enough. <laughs> like, they were they were quite quite quickly it, after it that. Did, so yeah, that was that's probably my. <laughs> it did make me think though of, of the the amount of like bullshit that beloved Morgan Freeman gets away with because in this he spends the film just lecturing this absolute bollocks about how you can use you know eighty ninety a hundred percent of your brain and this is the same guy of course <laughs> who explained the loom of fate in Wanted. Do you remember that? How the loom yeah. would spell out the name. It's just he basically just plays exposition, doesn't yeah. he? That's his kind of that's his that's his role. Yeah, cities. well, with yeah. with Freeman, I reckon they read the screenplay and they go, "Oh, this is fucking preposterous. No one can say this. Give it Morgan Freeman, and people will lap it up because he's got that voice." <laughs> anyway, enough about that. Uh, what have you got next? Uh, the next one I wanted to talk about was um, a film I've been trying to see for ages, and a, another shout out to Mubi for this. They're doing a first films first series at the moment, uh, which is fantastic opportunity to see. Films that don't always get a wide release and our first films from some very established directors. In this case, one of my favourite directors working today. This is Denny Villeneuve's first film. This is August 32nd on Earth, which originally came out in 1998. Uh, this is kind of centres... There's a very French New Wave vibe to this, which I think is undoubtedly deliberate because there's sort of seabird posters up around around the, the film and that kind of thing. So it's, there's definitely the music is very New wave the kind of tone of it's very French New Wave. Um... Yeah, so you've got a, a, a young woman involved in a near-fatal car crash. She kind of questions her mortality and then decides that she's going to try and have a baby with her best friend. Um, it's an interesting film. I don't think it's... I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a weak film. It's certainly not his strongest work. It feels, I guess, a bit like the films he's trying to evoke here. Like, so an argument against some of the French New Wave is it feels a bit directionless at times. It feels a bit ponderous. This is all of those things. Um... But it's, you know, it looks stunning. It's interesting to see his visual style develop like this early on in his, with his first feature. It looks absolutely incredible. There's some sort of fantastic shots that don't really, that would seem out of place in a film sort of this low key, but it does look incredible. Um, it just lacks a bit of weight and a bit of direction compared to some of his later films. But if you are a fan of Denis Villeneuve, um, then, you know, absolutely check it out on movie at the moment. It's well worth a watch. Um, so yeah, interesting, interesting. It, it was good, but not great, but certainly fascinating to see, to see some first films on there. So yeah, that's August 32nd on earth. So, uh, check it out if you're lucky enough to have movie. And if you haven't got movie, get it. Yeah, yeah, do. <laughs> I mean, even though you, sir, listening to this, uh, wherever you are in listener land may have missed that 50 quid for a year, absolute bonanza of a movie, movie promotion at the end of last year, even so it's worth the, the, whatever they're 
charging a month now. Six quid a month? Nine ninety nine. Nine, okay. I think it's nine ninety nine. Okay. Now. It's yeah. still worth nine ninety nine. Let's go with that. Yeah. Uh, talking of that platform, Paul, uh, Nimic, I don't think we've discussed yet, which is the Yorgos Lanthimos short film that is also screening and available through the movie platform. Um, this one at its centre has Matt Dillon as a guy who plays... Uh, a stringed instrument, violin perhaps, um, double bass, I forget. He plays in a stringed uh, orchestra. <laughs> He's in an orchestra, Paul. And uh, he goes home <laughs> on the subway one day. A person opposite him is sort of looking in his general direction, a woman, and he asks her if she has the time. She then sort of stares into the middle distance and repeats the question verbatim, do you have the time? From which point she sort of becomes his shadow. She follows him home. She introduces herself to his family as if she were him and as if there's some kind of conflict between who's in fact telling the truth. It's weird. It's a bit elusive. It's a bit of a head scratcher at times. And it's all the stuff that we know and love of Yorgos Lanthimos, at least the, the really weird end of, of Lanthimos's work. And so um, I, for one, was really pleased that it was there pretty intrigued by the project and running at what 11 12 minutes something like that it's one that you can uh you know bang out in absolutely no time and sort of Yorgos Lanthimos in 12 minutes can make you think more than a lot of directors can in two hours so um <laughs> yeah, agree. highly yeah, highly I really recommended liked it. I really like it. it and I like Matt Dillon anyway because you remember how we both loved that Lars von Trier movie a couple of years ago and agreed it was the best film of the year I don't remember the conversation quite going <laughs> that way but we definitely did talk about the house that Jack built I think <laughs> yes we did uh, what have you got next <laughs> Uh, so the last one from me this week is The Cell uh, from the year 2000, which is the directorial debut of Tarsem Singh. Um, I'd never seen this when it came out. Uh, this stars Jennifer Lopez um, as a child psychologist who can enter people's minds, I think, through some kind of experimental technology. Um, yeah, uh, the, it, the visuals are superb in this. Uh, w when it works, I think the, vis the visuals are stunning. Um, however, it just doesn't elevate what, aside from the visuals inside people's minds, of which there is nowhere near enough, I don't think. Otherwise, it's just a very drab, run-of-the-mill kind of serial killer thriller that never never really finds an upper gear. Like, outside of, as I said, outside of the visuals, you've seen this film sort of done before and done better. Vincent D'Onofrio's fine here. He, you know, he plays a creepy weirdo quite well. Um, Jennifer Lopez's costumes are, are incredible, but it just it's just very run of the mill i think it's 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 coasting too much on tarsem singh's kind of visual creativity and not a lot else so style over substance really i i, I was ex i don't know why i was expecting better because the reviews are all been middling but i was a little bit disappointed with this if i'm honest yeah it's shit um i <laughs> i well no i i, I shouldn't be so glib Tarsem Singh's really interesting because Tarsem Singh's this guy who who made decent coin uh, making really fancy uh, commercials for huge brands, huge companies. So he would sort of travel around the world and whilst making a commercial, he would be trying to do something creative on the side. You know, that very much that like one for them, one for me type of yeah. mentality and approach. And then, you know, as, as you've mentioned, after this abortion of a movie, he made the movie The Fall, which is beautiful just absolutely beautiful yeah re i really like the fall i really like the fall which is why i think why probably why i was so disappointed in this mm. um and in my head i had the fall as his debut because i felt like oh maybe he's, he's made this art this more artistic film and then he's just 
made the jump into more commercial filmmaking. I had I put the two of them the other way around, to be honest. Mm. But yeah, and I mean the guy since as well has made some absolute pap. But what you always get with Tarsum Singh is this real visual flair and like this eye for kind of grand. Um, uh, like show pieces, I suppose, or or kind of these diorama type scenes that he creates. So yeah, uh, I, I like his stuff. I just wish some of the writing was better, and and no better example of that than the cell maybe. Um, talking about terrible writing, Paul, I saw a little film called Spree. You saw this, didn't you? Also, at some point, I have seen Spree. Yeah, yes. It came out sort of tail <laughs> end on. of last year, I think August last year in the UK. And he's very much a vehicle for the actor, Joe Keery, who's in Stranger Things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this from director Eugene Kotlyarenko, let's say, uh, who is a director who seems to not have done much of much. Um, he's got another film out at the moment called We Are, which sounds dreadful. Uh, this one, Spree, is basically about a guy who takes the slightly implausible leap from wanting to get social media followers and viewers on, let's say, YouTube. I don't know if they name it on the in the film. And uh, goes from just filming aspects of his life that everybody's ignoring because everybody in the world's filming themselves for their own YouTube channel to realising that he can rig up his uh, equivalent of an Uber with a load of cameras and then start killing people. And this way, he might bring some eyeballs to his channel and therefore become well-known and famous because he's fame-hungry. And it turns out, uh, you know, fame might actually not be um, as fantastic as we're led to believe. All that glitters is not gold, Paul. Um, all that glitters might end up with you just bludgeoning people to death at random. I kind of hated this movie because I think if you can not do, like, proper social commentary, which it can't, then make it good fun. And it kind of starts as if it's going to be good fun and then it just becomes tedious, like just tedious to me um, in in a way that I just, it, it disappoints me when a project like this that could have been something ends up being very little. And it reminds me again, and I feel like I say this every fourth show, what an underrated film the film Nerve is, Paul, because it basically does this, <laughs> but it's both better social commentary, although pretty shallow, let's be fair, and then it's way more entertaining than what we've got here. I mean, did you like this film? No, I mean, I, I had some I had some fun with some of the darker comedic moments, I'll be honest. There are some kind of amusing set pieces, but I just, A, I don't think it really found an upper gear. And the other thing I had a problem with is that um, it, the, I don't know whether it's the visual style, the fact it's the fact it's shot trying to look like he's streaming, and that always that always grinds my gears and rubs me up the wrong way a little bit because you know the language of film is is meant to be cinematic, like you're meant to have camera movement, you're meant to have editing. All this exists for a reason. So all these films that are kind of done from and they they try and play around with it a bit, but I think maybe the vis the visual style kind of dragged it down for me a little bit. And it and again one of the biggest sins of a film like this is it felt long at ninety minutes. Um, and that is, you know, if a film starts to drag and it's 90 minutes long, that's that's a, kind of a write-off for me, really. I think I'm kind of with you. I think the idea had potential. I think Joe Keery's good in this. I think he's very. I think he's a, a, certainly a talent to watch. Um, he's he's definitely a presence in this film. But yeah, it just didn't it didn't all fit together for me. So I'm, I'm pretty much with you, to be honest. Yeah, and and did you have that double take moment in it as well? Where you went, it, is that Misha Barton off the OC? And it. Yeah. And it is, and it really is. So, like, yes. yeah. I, God bless her. Misha Barton's fallen on some hard times, I think. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those, isn't it, that kind of gets attention because it's very kind of in vogue to make 
edgelord films about what the internet's doing yeah. to people but there's just not much there once you dig into it i don't think and so you're right like i think that central performance is decent i think he'll go on to better stuff and this will just be one of those blips on his you know um filmography that he can forget about in a while david arquette's in it as well which is fucking weird he must know the director or something <laughs> like that or, or just be desperate for a check but yeah it, it, there's just better stuff there's just better stuff that's doing this exact kind of thing and so um i would probably steer clear um or you know or or steer directly into it and then run back over it and run over it again and put it on the internet if you want uh but yeah that's the end of my uh popcorn movie section for this week i think paul any more from you uh, no, I mean, there's there's plenty more I've seen, but no, I'm going to, we'll keep it brief. We'll keep it brief. Um, and then we'll be back after this with a review of uh, Pieces of a Woman. So back we are, Paul, with our review of Pieces of a Woman. This one, very much a vehicle for the acting talents of Vanessa Kirby, uh, directed by a director uh, who I'm not even going to try and pronounce, Paul, for fear of embarrassing myself. Look it up, folks. Uh, but yes, this one adapted, I believe, from a play from uh, a writer called Cato Weber or Weber um, into what is really a film that we can't talk about in any real meaningful depth without talking about its opening pre-credit sequence. Uh, other than what I've said now, I think I'll leave uh, before the clip with just the fact that co-starring here is Shia LaBeouf and in support is Ellen Burstyn. Uh, we'll talk more about our thoughts right after this clip. She has to pay for her incompetence. Is this about money? No. Is it, is it about what, what people think? It's about you. It's about you having to face this. I am and... facing this. I am facing it. I am facing this. Well, I don't think you are. We need, we need some justice here. No, you need. That is what you want. That is what you need. That is, that is your way. That is not my way. That is what you need. Martha, if you had done it my way, you'd be holding your baby in your arms right now. As you said before the clip, um, yeah, we can't really talk too much about this film without kind of saying what's, what it's about. And the opening half an hour um, is essentially a prolonged look at a childbirth that goes horribly, horribly wrong. Um, and I, I wanted to say that, say this up front. It is probably the most one of the most powerful 30 minutes of cinema you will certainly see all year. Um, the opening half an hour, I think, is absolutely incredible. Pete, any any thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, I know for a fact that um, Vanessa Kirby has talked about the process of filming the sequence, which, yeah, as we're saying, runs fully sort of 25 plus minutes and um, a lot of it in single take. And they had to redo that single take a number of times. I think over a dozen times she she went through what she went through to to bring that thing to fruition, as did, as did the team here. And um, even that sort of boggles the mind. The the emotional ringer that everyone had to go through again and again and again and again until they got the take that they were happy with. But I think that the choice to use that unbroken take was a fantastic one because it doesn't allow you the respite of leaving the situation. My wife and I talked about this as we were watching it. I mean, honestly speaking, Paul, from the beginning of the film until this sequence is over, I went from feeling absolutely fine to feeling a sort of weird mixture of physical sickness anxiety and sort of just having a bit of a like funny turn like I, 
it had a, a physical effect on me watching what happened here. How about you? I mean, it was powerful, but but did you feel that you came through it okay at the other end? Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. I mean, I watched it by myself. My wife has point blankly refused to watch it. She was like, "Why would I want to watch that?" And I, I get that to be honest. The, you know, the power of the scene, the, the power, certainly the power of the first half an hour. I, I absolutely get that. But yeah, it's um, you know, I can't. I can only imagine what it must be like for a woman to a have to act that and b watch this, you know. So I we, I can't talk from a female perspective on this, but even from a, even from a male perspective, like this was an uncomfortable uncomfortable scene to watch, as it should be. You know, you don't necessarily enjoy every part of a every part of a of a good film that you watch, and certainly this is not an enjoyable scene. But uh, it's it's a fantastic fantastic piece of work, and yeah, the single take as you say, I think really worked really, really well for exactly that reason. So yeah, it, um, I kind of, I was there kind of with goosebumps for a little while afterwards going, okay, I can breathe again. Right. The first, that, that's over. I can breathe now. <laughs> that's kind of how I was feeling. Yeah. Because I mean, it's very much a pre-credit sequence. I mean, the, the scene ends with then a fade out and then fade up on the title card, you know, with the title of the film where you think, my God, like the film's starting and I've just been through what I've been through there. And alongside Kirby's character, we should say, is her partner played by Shia LaBeouf here, who is in sort of peak Shia LaBeouf form in terms of playing um, harrowed young man with a lot on his plate, just trying to cling on for dear life, which I think is a particular mode, you know, that he that he carries out very well. Um, and then later in the film, you get the addition of another performer who is sort of known for very much a wrought, difficult, emotional work in Ellen Burstyn. And I mean, every time I see Ellen Burstyn, I just think of her, uh, I just wanted to be on television. And so that was kind of rattling yeah. around in my head <laughs> to add to the heady concoction of emotions that this thing elicited. But I suppose, Paul, we should then confront our second point in discussing the film, at least off mic, which is, when you open with such a bravura sequence, such a massive emotional impact, such a hefty piece of work, how on earth do you sustain that? Or at least make a film that matches and sort of earns that sequence after you've opened so strong out of the gate? And I mean, I guess my question for you is, did the director and the team manage to make a film worthy of that sequence? Maybe. Um, would be would be my probably my initial thoughts. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one to answer, and I just going out of the gate on on kind of the the rest of the film as such. I don't want to say that it's bad because I don't think it is, but I think with the potential they had with the strength of the opening scene to make something truly incredible here, I think it is it feels like a bit of a missed opportunity. You know, there are the the reasons for that. I'm going to. I didn't fully personally buy into the story the film went on to tell. I thought. Certain things were too much of a coincidence. I didn't buy into the fact that there's a... So basically, the Ellen Burstyn's character, her mother decides that she's going to press them to take the uh, the midwife to court for kind of... Basically, take the midwife to court to get compensation because they want some justice for the family. And then you have an almost too convenient character who is a, who is a prosecution lawyer played by... Um, succession Sarah Snook there's nothing wrong with Sarah Snook's performance in this I think it's strong this character appears and suddenly there's a there's a friend of the family that is conveniently a prosecution lawyer and I just didn't buy into the I just didn't buy into the story from that point really I thought that considering it was such a strong opening and it just became a bit of just a, a fairly standard standard well-acted drama that didn't do anything particularly remarkable after the first half an hour I don't think 
Yeah, I, I mean, maybe it's an easy segue, but I tell you who would be um, somewhat proud of the level of excruciating discomfort and tension created by that opening sequence. Uh, a certain Benny Safdie, who is one of the uh, supporting characters in the film as well. Yes. Um, weird to see Benny Safdie playing alongside Eliza Schlesinger, the stand-up comedian. Also someone, and this is sort of by the by, that I don't particularly warm to as a, as a comedian and a, and a performer. So I guess that might have coloured my impression of sort of a section of the film anyway. Uh, not that she does an awful lot, I don't think, here. Um, no disrespect intended, I guess. But yeah, I'm kind of with you, man. Like, I think... What you get after the opening sequence is a good but not great drama about uh, loss and about grief and about the kind of hand grenade thrown into a relationship by something as devastating as the loss of a child. I just feel perhaps that better filmmakers have made rather better films about something like this territory. Um, I, I guess I could put it like mm. that. And not least because I feel here like there is a, a very, um, at times, I think as you were intimating, a sort of a staginess to the film that feels of a piece with it being a play, with it being a, a piece of performance, with it being a showcase for the likes of Ellen Burstyn and particularly Vanessa Kirby, who is excellent here. But sequences yes, feel so. very written and i mean i'll I'll give you a a case in point paul and see what you think and i'm not going to spoil exactly what happens in this sequence but there's a dialogue sequence right in the middle of the film and it's very much a sort of showstopper here and it maybe is a scene that would be looking for for some sort of awards recognition and it is a sequence between kirby's character and her mother played by ellen burstyn where Finally, after sort of holding things down and keeping it all inside, uh, Vanessa Kirby's Martha explodes at her mother and tells her that the things that she's pushing for are her ambitions and not her daughter's, are her desires and not her daughter's. And her emotional sort of um, pitch rises and rises and rises to a kind of crescendo. But then on top of that, the response from Burstyn's character is to tell a remarkably harrowing story about her own childhood. And rather than going the way of finally feeling sort of broken apart by the weight of this stuff and the meat and the the impact of this stuff, I went the other way, which was just like, this was too much. This, like, Mm. separate those two sequences, pull them apart, have something in between, allow that to build. But it felt like it, it sort of went up to 11 and then maybe to 12. And at a point, then it starts to sound a bit possibly, shrill. Do you think it possibly falls falls into the trap of of awards baiting in terms of like here's a there were certain scenes where you think oh this is a for, this may as well just have for your consideration stamped on it at this point. Yeah, um, I mean, kind of. I I I do think that in the sense of like the writing, but then I think it could have been padded out in a way that would just make that a bit more elegant so that it doesn't maybe leave itself mm. open to that kind of claim, yeah. Yeah, as I said, it's, it's, it's not a bad film by by a long stretch, but but I'm with you. And I think we talked we talked off mic as well about some of... It's very heavy-handed, I think, um, in places. I mean, like, a, a very heavy-handed. Pete, do you agree? I think you, you raised some examples well, when we were talking off mic about this. It's just not a subtle film by a long stretch. Yeah, I mean, think about things like um, the conversation on the steps, on the on the porch or the, the walk up in. Um, uh, oh, now I've forgotten the name of the movie that I'm going to talk about. Um, the economic crisis movie. 
Ah, margin call. Thanks. Margin call, yeah. uh, yes. In, in margin call, the conversation I'm talking about is the Stanley Tucci one where he talks about the bridge. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's JC Chandor. It's maybe not the most subtle bit of dialogue, the most subtle sort of um, uh, metaphor for what's going on with the economy at the time. But compared to some of the stuff here, I mean, there's a bit in which Shia LaBeouf just stares into the middle distance and starts talking about a picture on a wall of the uh, Tacoma Bridge and 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 why it once collapsed and it collapsed because of resonance and when the thing on the inside and the thing on the outside match then you have resonance and it's like oh I get it this is a screenplay like we understand <laughs> it's a screenplay and as soon as that happens for me I lose it loses me a little bit I think um, and, and you know and well, then you he's go working to... on a construction team for a bridge as well isn't he if I remember rightly yeah. which you know <laughs> yeah he is yeah, he, he absolutely is. And, you know, then you've got the, the imagery with the apple and then the pip of the apple and growth. You've got the fact that her name is, uh, her family name is is Weiss, as in white. But then there's the allusions to Nazi Germany, believe it or not, in the movie. And it just, yeah, you said, you know, perhaps heavy handed. And I think, I think so. When it comes to that stuff, I think so. If you start to notice it, the whole point is that that stuff should work on a sort of a subtextual sort of subconscious level absolutely and it yeah. becomes very you know in your face i think after a while and i mean even the the thing that happens with photo developing towards the end i mean i don't know i don't want to sound like i'm slamming the movie it's just one of those where i started to get a little bit um short of patience with the way that it was constructed on the page um as opposed to the way it was performed you know, on the screen by by the actors here. And and I wanted to say, sorry, on performances as a last thing, I think Molly Parker is an excellent actress and her character who plays the um, midwife, who's the mm. stand-in, who is maybe, maybe not somewhat responsible for the tragedy that occurs at the beginning of the film. I thought her performance was really strong and I almost wanted a, to see a bit more of her in the film. And I felt like it maybe would have benefited, but... You know, you tell the story you tell and maybe the story that, that I wanted to be told or the way I wanted it told wasn't. Yeah, I think I would like to see more of her. I think the one last thing I want to say as well, and talking a bit heavy handed is and talking about the, the, the for you consideration thing. I just thought towards the end, there's certain scenes that do drift too much into melodrama. So you've got um, Vanessa Kirby gives a big courtroom speech and you're just like, this would not happen. Like this just and it just drifts. Yeah, it just drifts away from for a film that starts so strongly. It was just disappointing. Again, it's not a bad film. I'm not. I'm like you. I'm not trying to not trying to cast like all of the shade on it. I just it had so much potential to be an incredible piece of work, and it turns out to be just a good one in the end. Um, so it's just a bit mm. of a shame that it didn't live up to didn't live up to its opening half an hour. But I reiterate that opening half an hour is an incredible piece of cinema, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. If you know a bit panic attack inducing, um, yeah. be careful um, and, and triggering for certain people. I'm very much sure. But uh, yeah, all you have to do in a courtroom sequence, there, Paul. If you're writing a screenplay with a courtroom sequence and you want something incredibly implausible to happen, you know the trick. You just get the judge to say uh, this is highly unusual, and then <laughs> yes. go ahead and do yeah. whatever you want. And do it anyway. Then, then yeah, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. precisely. So yeah. yeah, definitely good stuff. Definitely good performances. Uh, I think sort of an overreach in terms of. Um, symbolism uh, metaphor and and some of the script is just trying a little bit too hard here but um yeah check it out um just go in with the warning that you're in for an absolute uh, well a trip through the ringer on the first half hour of the thing but yeah that one's pieces of woman it's available to stream right now on netflix paul 
Let's take a little break, but when we come back, we're gonna look forward to 2021, the revival year, the year where all the bad things turn into good things, the year when all of our dreariness and doom and gloom turns into anticipation, expectation, and excitement. All right, enough, enough <laughs> of that, let's go to a break. See you in a bit. <laughs> Right, so here we are. As Pete said, lots of positivity. Most anticipated films of 2020. We're going to do some honourable mentions. Uh, and the reason we're doing honourable mentions is because these are films we're excited about. And certainly on my list that I don't think we've got any chance of actually seeing in 2021. But we might do. Um, so we're going to do some honourable mentions first. Then we're going to count down our top 10 most anticipated for 2021. Uh, Pete, let's let's get on with it. Um, what Some honourable mentions. What are you excited about this year that you may not think will come out or didn't quite make your list? You know what, Paul? I've gone a different way. I'm not going to put into my list the caveat this may not come out this year because, honestly speaking, I kind of think if we say it might not come out this year, well, everything might not come out this year to a fair degree. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to remain positive, upbeat, slightly delusional, you might say. Uh, but anyway, getting into my honourable mentions is more films that didn't make it into the top 10 here for various reasons. You'll understand why when I give you this first title, Paul, which is Jungle Cruise. Are you aware of the film Jungle Cruise with Dwayne The Rock Johnson? I am. It didn't make my list. <laughs> Why do you think that I might have put this here? Because Emily Blunt's in it? No, like I'm not that big of a, a sort of stan for Emily Blunt. No, uh, Jam Collette Serra's the director, the guy who made The Shallows. And I think off the credit from that movie alone, I'm somewhat interested in a sort of big, rompy, water-based action thing that he now gets to do. So yeah, Emily Blunt is, is in it. Uh, Jesse Plemons is in it, which is interesting, uh, with a bit of range, as we know. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, of course, as previously mentioned. Edgar R uh, Ramirez, uh, Paul Giamatti. A host of recognisable names. Uh, Jack Whitehall, cough, uh, is also in it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not going to light up my life, I guess. This won't get on my top 10 of the year list. I can guarantee you that right now. But it might be a good time, Paul. So um, expected to drop in the UK, things being well, about the end of July, July 30th, um, 2021. So that one is Jungle Cruise. Uh, do you want me to list all of the honourable mentions yeah, or just one by yeah, one? Yeah, throw, throw out some honourable mentions and then we'll do. We'll go back to our tried and trusted list format. <laughs> cool. Um, okay, another one, No Future, from writer-director Andrew Irvine. This one starring an actress that I just absolutely adore in Catherine Keener, alongside Charlie Heaton and another actress I, I adore, Rosa Salazar. Uh, this one is a sort of drama about bereavement and a relationship between an older woman and a younger man. I believe that will be the Keener and Heaton characters, respectively. Um, and... I don't know, man. Catherine Keener's in it. What do you want? Rosa Salazar's there. Oh, I'm in. So, um, yeah, it's it's going to be, um, I, I would imagine, not particularly hilarious material. Um, it's going to be serious, dramatic work. And it's supposedly coming out at least stateside in the middle of April of this year. No, that's not true. No Future has apparently already had a festival release in the US. So I think it'll be in the UK in this year, pretty much guaranteed. That one's No Future. Okay. Uh, in addition, I have got... Uh, no Sudden Move. This is a Steven Soderbergh project. Remember when he retired? Um, the, the synopsis here, a group of criminals that are brought together under mysterious circumstances and have to work together to uncover what's really going on when their simple job goes completely sideways. We've got uh, the likes of Matt Damon, Brendan Fraser in this one, uh, Kieran Culkin, John Hamm. Um, I'm, I'm interested uh, in that. It sounds all right. Crime Capers, Steven Soderbergh. He's still on a bit of a 
uh, hanging by a bit of a thread in my regard, but um, I'll be in for that. And finally, I just wanted to mention one that might come up on your list. I don't know. Uh, this one, The Eternals, uh, directed by Chloe Zhao, but obviously a Marvel property and an Angelina Jolie performance, which is an increasingly rare thing, I think, these days, albeit again in a kind of um, flight of fancy type of a movie. But um, I'm in for that. Richard Madden's in it. Gemma Chan's in it. I mean, there are people with high, high cheekbones. I'm so intrigued as to how this is going to work. Work because Chloe Zhao, I got lucky enough to see Nomadland at Bar Film Festival um, latter part of last year, and The Rider was superb. Chloe Zhao and Marvel are not two things that go together for me at all, so it didn't quite make my top two in the year list. But I'm incredibly intrigued to see how this is going to work because of all the directors they've worked with, this is does not fit for me. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very, yeah, very intrigued to see how this one turns out. To be honest, if if you tell me that there's a film where Angelina Jolie is an immortal being, I'm there. Um, and yeah, this one drop in 5th of November stateside, at least it says here. So um, we'll see what happens end of the year, I guess. Paul, I'm going to stop there with honourable mentions. What have you got? Uh, so a few honourable mentions. Um, we've got the new film from Anna Lily Allenpour, which is Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon, uh, which I'm very excited about um, because she's one of the most interesting uh, directors working today, without a shadow of a doubt visually very exciting um and you know i like both of the other films so uh yeah excited for that one uh rebel ridge new jeremy saunier film again whether or not that drops this year i don't know that's that's excites me um untitled paul anderson project uh or untitled sorry untitled paul thomas anderson project it's not a film by me although that is very nearly complete listeners you'll be able to see that soon after nearly a year but that's that's a side note i'm not putting my own film on my most anticipated of the year list i promise um so yeah excited about that killers of the flower moon new martin scorsese movie which i think is coming to apple tv uh decision to leave new film from park chanuk uh which excites me a lot and another one i just wanted to throw in which i've seen uh which is i was lucky enough to see when i reviewed it for uh, another website that i did a bit of writing for last year uh wendy uh the new film from ben zeitlin um hopefully it gets a uk release this year because i absolutely loved it uh which is a retelling of the sort of peter pan and wendy story um uh, which is just a beautiful beautiful film that i have gone a bit mad for over and above a lot of critics but it excites me hopefully it will go a wider release and come out in the uk this year so that's kind of my honorable mention stroke things i don't think will make 2021 <laughs> cool well let's get on with it then so we're going to do a full top 10 on both sides here countdown so we'll try and keep them pretty succinct particularly in the sort of 10 through 6 i guess I'll kick us off, Paul, at number 10 for me um, is the next directorial project from Taika Waititi, which is completed, apparently. So there's a decent chance, um, as far as anything has a decent chance, that it will come out this coming year. This is uh, from Taika Waititi as director and also writer, but writing alongside Ian Morris that people will know uh, as for his work on The Inbetweeners, for example, in the UK. Um, and this is an adaptation of a documentary, would you believe, about the American Samoan football team who suffered the worst loss in World Cup football history, losing 31-0. Um, so <laughs> wow. uh, fertile territory, I think, for some comedic stuff. Uh, involved in this is uh, a guy with a bit of a shadow over him at the moment. We won't go into it in Army Hammer. But also uh, Elizabeth Moss, who uh, I, listeners know I like quite a lot. Uh, Michael Fassbender's involved. Reese Darby, who obviously has done uh, comedic stuff with the director before. Um, so, yeah, uh, reasons to be excited. Well, you know, you have me at Taika Waititi, but then you added on football and Elizabeth Moss, and that's <laughs> That's all I need. So, yeah, with all being well, that'll be out this year. Uh, it's called Next Goal Wins. 
Paul, what's number 10 for you? Uh, number 10 for me is The Green Knight. This is the next film from director David Lowry, who we love on this show. There's no arguing that from Ghost Story, which is an incredible film. Uh, this is the trailer dropped very early last year um, and was one of the best trailers I've seen for a while. This stars um, Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, and one of my favourite underrated actors working today, Joel Egerton. Uh, this is... Uh, I'm going to go with the IMDb synopsis because the trailer doesn't really let on. Um, this looks absolutely incredible. It's a fantasy retelling of the medieval story of Sir Gawain the Green Knight with Dev Patel in the lead role. The trailer just looked like something else. I mean, visually, this is going to be absolutely stunning. Uh, I really like Dev Patel as an actor. Um, it'd be interesting to see him take on a darker role than I think we're used to seeing. And certainly, possibly even, a, there's looks to be a fair share of action in this as well with a lot of medieval fighting, um, some incredible looking, weird kind of sort of creature design and that kind of thing. So yeah, The Green Knight I'm very, very excited for. And that drops at the moment, 30th of July, 2021. So uh, yeah, look forward to that one. Nice. Uh, yeah, it, it may or may not get a mensch, Paul, a little bit later on. Uh, <laughs> the Matrix 4. I'm going to throw in at number nine. Uh, this one's slated for a UK release on the 22nd of December of this year, 2021. Uh, so who knows? It'll get bumped and it'll probably be 2022. But for now, um, I'm going to mention it because, you know, 1999, yada, yada. I was young. There's a glitch in the Matrix. Something's changed. I mean... I loved the first Matrix movie, as I'm sure we've discussed. I know we've discussed on this um, this here show. Less so two and three. Um, although I spoke to someone the other day who said they'd just watch them all as a trilogy and actually two and three get a bad rap. Maybe I'll go back, but I think they're probably that's, wrong. That's not true. Um, <laughs> yeah, here, uh, Larry, now Lana Wachowski um, in di directorial control uh priyanka chopra joins the cast uh, an actress that i like although i think that might be because i think she's beautiful more than she's a brilliant actress um keanu reeves obviously is uh, present and correct and that's absolutely essential here carrie ann moss is also back i don't know man like it could go either way it could be the kind of film that just feels like it's it's squeezing a bit more of that delicious uh milky money out of the teat of product you know but on the other hand maybe it'll be you know the weird wacky wachowski business that that i'm here for so i mean where are you at i don't want to like hijack the top 10 but where are you at with the matrix 4 are you excited it's on the list we'll see yeah. okay okay uh Give me uh, your number nine in that case. Uh, number nine is a film that I might have already seen um, and might be absolutely incredible. So it's definitely gone on the list. This is um, Sound of Metal, um, directed by Darius Marder, written by Darius Marder, starring Riz Ahmed as a metal drummer who loses his hearing. Um, yeah, uh, there's a lot of reasons to be excited for this. Um, it's, it's brilliant. Um, and we'll talk about it in more depth on the show. But I just wanted to give it some love and remind people that it is still coming out in the UK. I think it's out in a couple i don't 26 of march now it's been pushed to so it keeps getting pushed um but sound of metal uh be very excited for this one listeners is all i can say i just wanted to give it some love on the most anticipated list um i couldn't ha i wasn't going to say that i'd seen it but i've said it now so um there we go uh, that's number nine sound of metal number eight then for me and i probably should have pushed it up a place just to make it neat is uh, mission impossible seven uh, because Mission Impossible 6 was really good and you can, you know, try and argue that and you'd be just lying to yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, they're going to, again, turn everything 
like off the charts ridiculous in terms of spectacle um vanessa kirby in a very different kind of film here returns for mi7 uh, of course the cruiser is there rebecca ferguson who's already on board with the franchise is involved hayley atwell's here pom clementieff's here angela bassett simon pegg's back shea wiggum um yeah I mean, star-studded, huge action set pieces. I don't know a great deal about it at this point, to be fair. And I think it's been kept pretty secret um, in terms of the details of the plot and the events of this uh, particular instalment. But November 19th in the UK is currently the slated release date. So we will see. And this has also reminded me that I left F9 off this list somehow. So yeah, there's a Fast and Furious movie, a Matrix sequel uh, and a Mission Impossible movie coming out in the same year. I mean, what is not to be you know excited about on, on that front? So yeah, you want big action, you know, stay, stay tuned. Paul, what have you got at number uh, eight? Um, Mission Impossible 7, um, <laughs> weirdly enough. Oh. Um, yeah, this the, the, a lot of stuff on this list is unapologetically blockbusters, to be honest, because I think we've been so so starved of big budget experiences last year on the big screen that um, I'm eager to get into get into cinemas and watch shit blow up, if I'm honest. So, um, and there, you know, I think for me, I'm totally with you, Mission Impossible Fallout, the best action film since Mad Max Fury Road, in my opinion. It just absolutely blew me away. Um, I've always liked the Mission Impossible films, but Mission Impossible Fallout took it to a whole other level. So there's big expectations riding on this one, um, and it's the same director, the same team involved. So I've got a feeling it may meet them. Um, whether it exceeds Mission Impossible Fallout or not, I'm not sure that's possible. This Fallout was so good, but yeah, super, super excited for Mission Impossible Seven. It is isn't Top Gun uh, slated for this year? Yeah, as it's well? not on my most anticipated list, but the new Top Gun is is slated for this year. No, yeah. mine either. <laughs> But yes. Yeah. But I mean, I'm there for the spectacle, absolutely, oh, yeah. because all the stuff it looks like he's done in person looks looks fantastic. Uh, for me at number seven, one that's already been mentioned on your side, Paul, this is The Green Knight from David Lowry as writer and director, which is crucial because, of course, this is what gave birth to um, A Ghost Story, which is one of my favourite movies of the last decade. Um, and you've kind of covered the, the basics of uh, Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton involved. Um, it looks, it, weirdly, the director that I thought of when I saw the trailer of this is someone else we've talked about today in Tarsum Singh. It's mm. got that kind good, of um, really sort shout. of saturated, yeah. yeah, lush kind of um, aesthetic to it. So, yeah, details scant at this point. The release is slated for late July 2021. We'll see. But I mean, David Lowry's got an awful lot of credit in the bank as far as I'm concerned. And Dev Patel generally makes good stuff. So um, yeah, in for that. That's my number seven, The Green Knight. What's seven for you? Uh, Candyman, uh, remake slash spiritual sequel uh, directed by Nia DaCosta. Just the trailer just looks superb for this. It's co-written by uh, Jordan Peele. Uh, I think produced by Jordan Peele as well, starring Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, uh, who is an actor who I think is superb. Um, and I think this might be the film that kind of catapults his career um, even higher than the heights he's already been achieving. I thought the trailer looked incredible. The original Candyman, I don't think is talked about enough as a truly great horror film. I love the first Candyman. I think it's brilliant. It's a really, really dark film. Uh, it's a really, really distinctive style to it. The villain's great. The, to the tone of it's fantastic. And I think it's genuinely a scary, disturbing film. Um, and from the tone of the trailer on this one, I think, you know, there's not... They're not holding back on, on the darkness in this film. This looks like a, a really dark, genuinely scary 
uh, horror film and I think this could be could be one to watch this year it could end up being one of the the best horrors of the year but we shall see uh but yeah Candyman at number seven which is currently due all the way off in August even though it's finished so annoying so annoying to know these films are finished mm. they're waiting to go Green Knight's another one it's there it's 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 on a hard drive somewhere waiting to go um it's just annoying we have to wait all the way till August till Candyman but yeah Candyman my number seven Nice. Uh, number six. So we're just coming up on the halfway mark here. And, you know, you need a bit of a shot in the arm at this point, Paul. And what I'm going to give you is this. You take absolute lunatic director, Sion Sono, and you put him together with everybody's favourite American lunatic, Nicolas Cage. And then you make a film with a pair of those idiots. Uh, what we've got here is uh, Prisoners of the Ghostland, uh, which tells the story of a notorious criminal who needs to break an evil curse in order to rescue an abducted girl who has mysteriously disappeared. But I mean, you only need here Nick Cage and Sion Sono. I mean, <laughs> if people aren't aware, go and go and watch anything Sion Sono's done in his career and you'll understand the kind of like demented uh, sort of otherworldly level of gross out, weird uh, sort of hyperkinetic stuff that I'm talking about. Uh, in this as well, we've got um, oh a, a host of maybe Japanese actors I might not be so familiar with, but then mixed in with American counterparts as well. So I wonder, I imagine this thing is going to be uh, both English and Japanese language and Sophia Bautella, who of course is not averse to the odd bit of um, weirdness, having made such a big impact in Climax with, uh, with your boy... Um, Gaspar Noé. So yeah, this one, Prisoners of the Ghostland, is slated for a 31st of January, would you believe, USA release. Uh, whether that's going to be, you know, wide, I imagine not. And whether it'll get to the UK straight away, I almost guarantee not. But it does guarantee, I think, that we will see this film this year. And at least I will, if other people don't bother, because it's probably <laughs> really weird. Um, what's at number six for you? Uh, number six for me, again, whether this makes 2021 or not, I don't know. I think it's finished filming. This is The Northman, uh, the new film from Robert Eggers, starring uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicole Kidman. I mean, this cast, Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicole Kidman, Alexander Skarsgård, Ethan Hawke, Willem Dafoe as a character called Hymir the Fool, uh, Bjork as the Slav Witch, um, a Viking revenge saga set in Iceland at the turn of the 10th century, directed by Robert Eggers. Come on. <laughs> what is not to like about the premise of that? I think this is going to be batshit crazy. I think it's going to look incredible. And Willem Dafoe plays a character called Jaime the Fool, as I might have already mentioned. I'm quite excited for this one, and I hope we see it this year. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, add to that, class bangs in it from The Square. Uh, Ralph yep. Innocent, who of course was in The Witch. And the reason why I'm reading these names off, Paul, is because my number five is oh. The Northman <laughs> from uh, writer-director Robert Eggers. Yeah, I mean, just as you said, you read the synopsis of this. And like, yeah, I wasn't so high on uh, The Lighthouse as, as you were. And, you know, we discussed that on the show. Uh, I'm massively more a fan of uh, The Witch. But like when you read Viking Revenge Saga <laughs> set in Iceland and a kind of fantasy casting call that they've obviously done for this thing and you know the wildly separated giant eyes of Anya Taylor-Joy I mean what yeah what else what else do you need so yeah that's my number five the Northman we can move swiftly on to whatever your number five so my number five is again a film that I'm pretty sure is finished um but I, I won't labor that point because uh, most of these probably are uh this is Last Night in Soho the new film from Edgar Wright this is a uh horror set in well it seems like it might be a horror there's certainly horror elements um, starring 
also one of my favourite actresses as well. And Taylor Joy pops up in this as well. Matt Smith's in this. Not as excited by Matt Smith's presence, but probably one of my favourite actors working today. Thomas and McKenzie's in this as well. So a new Edgar Wright project, always something to get excited about. The fact it's horror, a genre I love, another reason to get excited. Um, so yeah, not much known about this one at the moment, but um, I, except there's, there's kind of time travel involved and it's set in 60s London. So there maybe is a bit known about it. I'll, I'll backpedal on that. Um, hopefully we get a trailer soon. Uh, Edgar Wright mentioned something on social media the other day. There is a trailer coming soon. So this is currently pending for the 23rd of April uh, this year. So yeah, very excited for new Edgar Wright film. Uh, excited to see him turn his hand to horror, if indeed that's what it turns out to be. But it may not be, knowing Edgar Wright. But yeah, Last Night in Soho is my number five. Yeah, or back to horror, I suppose, yeah, yeah. In, in his case. Um, well, talking of horror, if you want, uh, number four for me is maybe it's not coming out this year. I don't know, man. You've depressed me with this talk now. But this one in in post-production is the new Guillermo del Toro movie, this one, Nightmare Alley. Um, it tells the story of an ambitious young carny, a carnival worker with a talent for manipulating people with just a few well-chosen words, who gets together with a female psychiatrist who's even more dangerous than he is. What about this for a cast, though? We have Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Rooney, uh, Rooney Mara, Paul Anderson, of course, that I last flagged in Sweet Virginia, but I'm sure has been in tons of stuff. Uh, Mary Steenburgen, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Ron Perlman, David Stratham, uh, uh, and on and on. Tim Blake Nelson is here. Richard Jenkins is here. I mean, it's a giant of a cast and it's a good Guillermo del Toro movie. So, um, yeah, I mean, that is my number four. Is this on your list or am I spoiling uh, things? No, it's not on my list because because I'm not confident. It, I, uh, it will come out this year, but yeah, no, I am excited for this. Um, as you say, it's a new Del Toro film, which is always reason to be reason to be excited. So yeah, very much looking forward to this one, but it didn't make my list. Um, this the number four for me. This is where I know there's one film on this that didn't come up on last year's list, but the top three of these films were in similar positions on last year's uh, most anticipated list. I'll be honest about that. Uh, this is The Many Saints of Newark, uh, directed by Alan Taylor. This is the prequel to one of my favourite TV shows of all time, uh, The Sopranos, which I'm incredibly excited about. Co-written by David Chase, who created The Sopranos. Uh, stars Vera Farmiga, John Berntow's in this. But probably most excitingly, they've cast the actual son of James Gandolfini as a young Tony Soprano. So, um, yeah, very excited for this one. Long overdue for this to come out, and I've got to wait until September. Uh, but hey-ho, <laughs> the time will fly, I'm sure. But yeah, I, I love The Sopranos. I love the fact they've cast James Gandolfini's son, as I've already said, and I can't wait to see this. Um, hope in the fact that they've got... this not It doesn't feel like a cash-in because they've got David Chase on board, and David Chase, we you know, was quite vocal about wanting to end Sopranos when he ended it. He was unapologetic about how he ended Sopranos. So I think he's got a, a story to tell here. And I don't think this is just a I don't think this is just a, a quick revival cash in, which I think we're going to see a lot more of with a lot of streaming services on. But that's a whole other podcast we can talk about that. So yeah, the many states of Newark is number four uh, and I can't wait. Number three for me then is the latest from beloved writer-director Wes Anderson. Uh, this one, The French Dispatch, which is completed, so the IMDb um, will have me believe, uh, starring Timothy Chalamet, Saoirse Ronan, Elizabeth Moss and everyone else in the world. Uh, Leia Sedu, uh, Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, a lot of the people who commonly team with uh, Wes Anderson are present and correct here. And again, I like. I feel like this might be a bit of, you know, uh, I sound like a broken record because it's just like, oh, you've got Wes Anderson and you've got these people involved, but... 
I feel for myself, Paul, that I, it's weird. Like my trajectory with Wes Anderson was like, I was a big Wes Anderson guy from stuff like Bottle Rocket, then fell away a bit in terms of becoming slightly frustrated maybe with some of the trappings of a Wes Anderson project. And then I've just swung back around now. By this point, you know, um, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, the fantastic Mr. Fox, of course, uh, the last Wes Anderson uh, as well, which name now entirely escapes me. Uh, fill me in. It's entirely escaped yeah, me. Yeah, uh, the Isle of Dogs. Dogs. Yeah. Isle of Dogs. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of those movies, everything that he's done recently has just really chimed with me and has, has, has made me feel more and more aware of the fact that they're just, you know, for better or worse, and it's not for everybody, but there just isn't a filmmaker working in, in American filmmaking like Wes Anderson um, and, and on the level and sort of the bar of quality that Wes Anderson sort of leaps over every time he's he's out here making movies. I mean, this one says that it's a love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in what is called the French Dispatch magazine. It will be quirk. It will be styled to within an inch of its life. Uh, it will be exacting. It will be trying probably for some people, but I probably will love it and it might well be on my 10 of the year list, but we'll see. The French Dispatch is my number three. What's number uh, three? Number three for me is a film that you brought up before. This is The Matrix 4. Um, I agree with all of, your, all of your concerns, but I don't know. I feel that Lana Wachowski may have... There's an opportunity here for Lana Wachowski to have listened to have given this some time to think. And also, I think um, either Wachowski is is well overdue for another another great film, because uh, you had Bound and The Matrix, both superb films, and then, you know, the, the, the output after that wasn't great. I'm quietly confident that this may well be really, really, really good. Um, I think there's, there's definitely room in the universe to expand it. I think there's some really interesting directions they could take this in. Um, and I'm very excited about this. And just to see what they do with and again it's, it's got a chance to kind of to reinvent the wheel in terms of special effects all over again whereas the first film did the second films fell too heavily on cgi i don't know i've just i'm quietly confident this this will be excellent um and i'm, I'm gonna be right it's going to be one of those films i'm going to be there in the cinema genuinely with goosebumps of anticipation as the credits roll and then probably leave in a bad mood but we'll see <laughs> Are you going to rewatch uh, Jupiter Ascending and Cloud Atlas just to build up uh, to this? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's a part of me that is probably just being mischievous and, and just caught a, sort of um, a dissenting voice where I think maybe both of those films are brilliant. But, you know, the logical part of my brain says that is not the case. But, you know, ultimately, Paul, bees aren't like people. They don't don't exactly. Oh, well, uh, number yeah. two... <laughs> Number two for me is one that you've mentioned. So we're going back and forth in that sense. And it is your boy, P.T. Anderson, returning to the San Fernando Valley for a 1970s set movie, going by the name of perhaps Soggy Bottom, if you listen to certain reports, but otherwise untitled Paul Thomas Anderson Project, which won't be obviously its final title. Uh, a film following a high school student who's also a successful child actor. Uh, Bradley Cooper's in it. I think you went through a couple of them early on. Benny Safdie, that we've mentioned a couple of times today, is in it as well. Um, I mean... Again, it's a P.T. Anderson project and P.T. Anderson, in difference to Wes Anderson, um, is a director that I just don't think has made a bad film. In fact, I don't think he's made anything less than a very good no, not film. Not even close. Um, not and even at his close best, to an average film. Yeah. 
and at best it has made you know some of the the defining films of the last 15 to 20 years so um yeah untitled paul thomas anderson project just inject it directly to into my veins asap uh, hopefully this year but we'll see uh, paul what's the number two for you godzilla versus kong done it's adam yeah. wingard though it's isn't adam it wingard directed it's godzilla yeah. versus kong i've got a soft spot for pretty much all of the godzilla films put giant monsters in a film when i watch it I liked Godzilla King of Monsters, although I can't bring myself to watch it twice. So I almost don't want to prove myself wrong. But but that aside, this is Adam Wingard, a director I love. This is Godzilla versus Kong. This is going to look, if nothing else, it's going to look incredible. I think the scale on this is going to be off the chart. Um, and it's almost another year to wait. Well, you know, I was excited about this last year. All that's done is ratchet up my excitement even more. So... You know, whatever this turns out to be, as I said, it's going to be just watching Godzilla fight Kong in their current awesome iterations with like bang up to date special effects. The creatures, creature design is going to be fantastic. The, I think the score will be epic. I think it will look great. And it's going to be a whole heap of fun, hopefully, if nothing else. So, uh, yeah, Godzilla versus Kong, unashamedly my number two most anticipated film of 2021. Yeah, I thought about putting this on the list and I was like, why bother? Because Paul's definitely going to put it really high <laughs> yeah, on the list. So. Yeah. Yeah, but but you know what? I'm I'm totally there for it because I think Adam Wingard's a director that we both like a lot, and I think the prop. I mean, what's to argue with? I mean, yeah, it, it could flop. Yeah, the production could have trouble. Yeah, it could go wrong. But you know, if if you can't get excited about Godzilla versus Kong and Adam Wingard in a in a beautiful trio, then you know you haven't got a pulse. <laughs> uh, number one for me, Paul, is one of those choices that I might live to sort of look a bit stupid having made but i'm willing to go out on a limb because um if you read through a little short filmography of a certain film director you read the titles chopper the assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford killing them softly and the documentary on nick cave one more time with feeling that of course is andrew dominic and andrew dominic's next movie is a movie about the inner life of marilyn monroe starring anna diarmas in the role of marilyn monroe my word this is so far in my wheelhouse i mean when I came out of Killing Them Softly, and I know not everybody liked it that much. People thought that the the allegory of what was going on in America and putting the stuff up on the TV all the time was very on the nose. I really liked that film. I loved the way it ended. I came out of it beaming. And this is on top of uh, the assassination of Jesse James being phenomenal and possibly his best film and Chopper being one of the... This is Blonde, right? I'm not sure you said the title. This is Blonde, is it not? Oh, yeah. it is blonde. Yeah, <laughs> no sorry, worries. I might have yeah, jumped yeah. over it in my in my barreling <laughs> excitement. But yeah, Chopper was one of those movies that you end up sort of telling everyone to watch when you're 19 yeah, years old yeah. or whatever, because it left such a, an imprint on, on me at the time. So yeah, once I saw it's Marilyn, I know Marilyn Monroe projects have been done almost to death. I know a lot of them have not been that great. I know a lot of significant actresses have had a go and maybe not with total success. And I know that Anna Diarmas is not an actress without maybe her flaws, um, flawless face, flawless skin, uh, skilled, no doubt. But whether she can pull off someone as iconic as Monroe remains to be seen. But Andrew Dominic's an amazing director, though. So um, I put this at number one no less that is blonde paul what is number one i'm just going to be honest about this i think by the time this finally comes out it might sit as my most anticipated film ever 
Um, I am so excited. Uh, what do you think? You can probably guess what this is, Pete, to be honest. Uh, this is Dune, um, Denny Villeneuve's adaptation of Frank Herbert's classic and dense on, definitely, he feels denser on second reading at the moment, uh, sci-fi novel of the same name by Frank Herbert, Dune. Um, this, and the trailer has now dropped, which has just increased my anticipation tenfold because the trailer just looks incredible. Uh, we've seen Denny Villeneuve turn his hand to big budget sci-fi with another super film that I love, Blade Runner 2049. I think this is i mean you can tell from that it's not i think this is going to look incredible you can watch the trailer and just this the scope of this is is vast this is going to look absolutely fantastic um you, you can probably listen to me say exactly the same things on last year's show uh, when it was my number one most anticipated film of last year as well i mean the cast you've got rebecca ferguson timothy chalamet jason momoa josh brolin oscar isaac dave Batista, Stellan skarsgård Javier Bardem, Zendaya, Charlotte Rampling, David Dasmalkian, just insane cast in this. Um, and you know, looking at the trailer, I think that like it felt to me like the pages of the book were coming to life. Like it's it kind of imagined everything I imagined how this looked. It is difficult to adapt. Uh, the David Lynch version is, I think, gets a slightly bad rap, um, but it's certainly not Lynch's strongest film. The sci-fi miniseries was all right, but didn't have the budget to really do it justice. This is. Big bud, hopefully big budget sci-fi filmmaking at its finest. Um, and Denny Villeneuve claims it's the best film he's ever made, and that's quite, you know, that's uh, that's going some, that's going some. He's he's talking it up. Um, so yeah, I impossibly, impossibly excited for for Dune, and uh, I won't be watching it at home. I will be lining up to the cinema to see it, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. So yeah, Dune once again uh, is my most anticipated film of the year. Yeah, even if the cinemas remain closed, you'll in. just be yeah. outside, being yeah. like, I'll wait. <laughs> yeah. I'll wait. Yeah, I'll wait. As long as it takes, yeah. I'm here. Um, yeah, uh, no, I, I, it was another one, uh, not unlike the Wingard film, where I was like, you know what, I'm not going to put it on here because Paul's going to have it covered. So, uh, yeah, I, I co-sign absolutely on the excitement of, for that one, but I just didn't include it on this list. I do want to like sort of shoehorn into the end, Paul, by the way, um, just to torpedo my own pick for number one. <laughs> I've just read a couple of things. One, well, one is not reading. One is looking at pictures of Anna Diamas as Marilyn Monroe. Oh, no. I'm not feeling great about it. And um, then the second thing is they've called Adrian Brody, the playwright, and Bobby Cannavale, the ex-athlete, because they don't want to mention Arthur Miller and uh, Joe DiMaggio like by name, which just seems a bit weird. So maybe this is one of those projects that's sort of been made despite people not so wanting maybe just, the stories to be told. maybe what you should do is way. put June in the number one instead then. <laughs> yeah, but then on the other hand, maybe maybe the fact that they haven't got a big cosy relationship with the families and the estates and telling the story, maybe that'll make that's for a good better point. material. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's the kind of edgy shit that Andrew Dominic would uh, would do anyway. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, but loads, man. Like in those two lists and the honourable mentions, absolutely tons to get excited about. Not to mention all the things that I'm sure listeners are anticipating that we haven't covered simply because we didn't have time or because, you know, we don't have the same taste in film. So get in touch. Let us know what are you looking forward to in the coming year other than the sweet release from the clutches of this horrendous coronavirus what at the cinema and at home are you looking forward to get in touch obviously at the normal places at stranger cinema on twitter uh, the instagram account is is live all the time and obviously facebook as well uh paul any closing words before we duck out for uh, this week? hopefully see you next time all right then bye-bye shut up and sit down, down.